uh, the first three chapters of Revelation, and we're going to continue in that series. Now, let's begin by prayer and uh, ask the Lord's blessing on our time. Dear Father, as we come to this section of the Word of God, we would like to ask you to allow your Spirit to speak to our souls so that we are receiving what is written in the pages of God's Word. Then, Father, you would empower us, you would strengthen us to do what's in the Word of God. That's the way that we would be able to have blessing from you. It says that in verse 3. And we'd like to ask you to do that in our midst, in Jesus' name. Amen. On Sunday, I gave an, uh, a little bit of an introduction to the book of Revelation. And, uh, and uh, I also uh, mentioned a little bit about the history of our assembly. And so this series was pivotal for us and, and remains pivotal for us. So the, the original thought was, well, what if the Lord wrote us a letter? What would he say? And so that's how we got to this point. Now, um, in order to do it justice, we need to look at the Lord Jesus in chapter 1. And in chapter 1, I said that you would meet two people, and one of those persons would have two different presentations or titles. The first person you would meet is the person we call the servant, and that is John the Apostle. The second person you meet is Jesus, and the two titles that we'll see him as are Savior and Son of Man. Now, when we finished on Sunday, we got to the point of uh, about Him being Savior. And so there are four points or four aspects of His being Savior that will be between uh, verse uh, half, half of verse 5 through verse 8. And they are the following. There's the Savior's resume. There's the Savior's accomplishments. There's the Savior's uh, coming. And there's the Savior as deity. And those are four points in this paragraph. And then what I want to do, Lord willing, tonight, is we'll talk about the Son of Man. And hopefully we'll tie up some loose ends and be able to get to Ephesians chapter uh, 2, excuse me, Revelation chapter 2 on Sunday. So let's begin. Turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1. And for the sake of discussion this evening, I'm going to begin reading at uh, for sake of efficiency this evening, I'm going to begin reading in verse 4. It begins, the salutation begins, should I back up a little bit? Are we good? No more feedback? Good. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ. And we talked about his resume And what are those things on his resume, the features of who he is? He's the faithful witness, a trustworthy communicator of the revealed word of God. When he came the first time to the planet, he was God, but clothed with flesh and bones, sort of hidden behind the texture of hair and color of eyes and the shape of muscles and and the size of bones. But yet, at the second coming, when Christ in this letter is revealing himself, it'll be a full disclosure of his godhood. And you'll see it as he then takes control of the earth by rightfully claiming the title deed that he has, I might add, earned, so he can legitimately claim back the earth that was already his to begin with. 
So we'll have a revelation of Jesus Christ, and it'll be accurate. It'll be true. Nothing like the elections to make us yearn for somebody to tell us, to tell us the truth, right? Every commercial, oh, they're my, my opponent is a liar, and then the next guy, my opponent's a liar, and I'm like, I don't want to hear anything else. But Jesus is not like that. Notice the other thing in his resume, firstborn from the dead, the idea of being um, uh, foremost in, in, the, in, the, uh, in the hierarchy of all, of all created order, foremost by not just uh, by rank, but by, by evidence. And what's the evidence? Resurrection from the dead. That's beautiful evidence. And then finally, ruler over the kings of the earth, when he will... Claim that title deed to the earth uh, through the tribulation period, setting up his kingdom where he will be world emperor and all the kings of the earth will be bowing before him. In the book of Revelation, the tribulation period, everyone is, is shaking their fist at God and instead of crying out to God, they're crying out for the mountains to fall on them so they wouldn't have to face God, Jesus Christ. And yet there will be a day when there will be no resistance. There will be no rebellion. There will be no agendas of making nuclear bombs so that, so that you could rule the world because Christ will be on the throne. And I am so looking forward to that day. Aren't you? Now, that's Christ's um, resume. Now let's look at the next couple of verses about his accomplishments, okay? Look in verse 5. It says, To him who loved us, and washed us from our sins in his own blood. Now, that is an amazing accomplishment that is depicted or described by the um, writer John. And he says, now all the stuff, all the stuff, there's going to be something that flows to him, and it's flowing to him because he did what no one else could do. He dealt with sin legally, legitimately and completely so that sin never comes up before the throne of God again. Not when his name is ascribed to your title, to your line of title. He does it not because he has to, but because he loves you and would gladly give his life for you. So that's a description of one of the descriptions of his accomplishments, but we didn't get to this one on Sunday. And made us kings and priests to his God and Father, to him be, oh, we did uh, glory for and dominion forever and ever, amen. I talked about how the, the priest was serving the things of God, and we are granted a sense of nobility and, and uh, royalty. And it's all done so that the glory of God could be put back in its proper place. Now, here we go. Save your coming. Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him, all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. Or what does that mean? Well, this is referencing several portions of the Old Testament. And for example, coming in the clouds is a direct reference to Daniel chapter 7 and verse 13, where that phrase coming in the clouds is actually used. Now, when he says, every eye will see him, what is that referring to? That's referring to Zechariah chapter 12, verses 10 through 13, which describes <laughs> when the Messiah comes, 
the audience of that era will see him and there will and he's talking about the Jewish audience in particular they will recognize that they had treated the the Messiah in the most disrespectful and dishonoring of ways by murdering him and that will uh, we we think will produce a sense of overwhelming humility and that believing remnant of the then Jewish people now this is quoted to you in the book of Matthew. And the Lord Jesus is talking about in reference to himself, and that made the Pharisees stinking mad that Jesus would equate himself to the coming Messiah. And so they would therefore put together a kangaroo court to convict him with trumped-up charges that were not his own, but he still bore charges. Those were mine. Those are mine on the cross. And so there's this, this thing about him, right? The Savior, he's got his, uh, his uh, resume, he's got his accomplishments, he's got his coming, and that's what the book of Revelation will be about, his coming to deal with the planet. And then finally, we have statements about his deity. Look in verse 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega. Now, you and I both know that's the beginning and ending of the Greek alphabet, and he's making a, a sort of symbolic statement. He's saying... I exist outside of the boundaries of time. He even says beginning and end. Those are words of time stamps. And what he's saying is, I actually exist out outside of what you think has such great dimension and limitation of your souls. I created that time, that entity called time. And so if I created that entity called time, that means I am above that uh, thing called time. I am that is that which would be God who reigns over time. And so he says it quite poetically. I am the Alpha and I am the Omega. I am the beginning and the end. You know, one of the things in life that is so nice is when you meet an expert, right? You got a problem with your plumbing. I call duck plumbing. They're the guys from East Lawrence, the Bradshaws. They come over. And they are experts. You see, we had a pipe break in our house last year. Wasn't it last year, Jen? I think so. And it was in this wall, and I could hear it running. There's nothing more mortifying to hear water in your wall. And so I turned off the water in the house, and and uh, Mr. Bradshaw comes over. Philip, wasn't it? Philip came over. And it's like he was a, a, a water pipe whisperer. Put his hand on the wall, felt here, felt there, took his little saw and went, <laughs> popped out a piece of drywall. And, hey, yeah, it's broken right there. Love experts, don't you? I mean, I, I think I think your brother Steve is of that quality. Steve Boucher is kind of an expert. He's over working on our house because we had the, we had some issues, and you know he just kind of like knows what he's doing. Well, isn't that in a small way, a comparison to the Alpha and the Omega. I mean, he's so expert, so accomplished, that he can make statements that happen to deal not with the discipline of plumbing or of carpentry, but with eternity. Now that's the God worth dying for, right? 
And that's who he is. So he tells us about his deity. He says this, who was, who is, who who is, and who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. The word Almighty is a word that describes um, uh, omnipotence, all powerfulness. Now, look at back, look, if you will, back at the latter half of verse 4. On Sunday, I mentioned to you that I think he's referring to the Trinity. Look, it says, for him who is and was, who is to come. Okay, that could be the Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit. But look in the next clause, from the seven spirits who are before the throne. That's referring to the seven uh, functions of the Spirit of God, seven ways that he works. So clearly the second clause is about the Holy Spirit. Then it says, verse 5a, from Jesus Christ. So that's obviously about Jesus Christ. So who who is this person who was and is and is to come? Well, it's got to be the Father, right? So how is it that Jesus is then taking that same title, who was and is, who is and was and is to come, how, how come he's taking that to himself? What is he saying? He's saying, I'm God. That's what he's saying. Taking that very title. Now, for us to comprehend that, we'd probably have to walk with a Savior on the earth. And I, I, it takes me back to the transfiguration. You know, they just thought Jesus was an ordinary Joe. They just did. He ate. He went to the bathroom. He got thirsty. He slept. He got tired. So when they went up on the Mount of Transfiguration, probably Mount Hermon, and they watched him, and the word is metamorphosis, they watched him metamorphosize in front of their very eyes where he became so brilliantly white and bright that, as Mark says, it was brighter than any launderer could ever actually bleach a sheet. That was a little added for emphasis, right? That's this 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 depiction of God in the flesh. And when he pulled back his flesh and bones like they were robes and they saw God, they were blinded by his brilliant a brightness. It was so profoundly affect, so profoundly affected them that Peter writes about it and he says, "Don't you get it? We didn't make up these cleverly devised tales in a back room of some sort of upper place that Mary owned. We were eyewitnesses of his magnificent glory when the cloud overshadowed us." I thought Peter would reference something like walking on water, but he references the moment of transfiguration of Jesus Christ. Why would he do that? Because in that moment, he saw that Jesus is God. And that's our Savior. That's our Savior. Profound revelation. Okay, so let's trace where we're going. We talked about the servant John. We've talked about the Savior, okay? Now I want you to see the Son of Man. And this is where we want to get through tonight, and hopefully we can uh, close out this first segment. I want you to read with me on verse 10. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet. I am the Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. What you see, write in a book and send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice 
that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And in the midst, notice that word, midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to his feet, and girded about his chest with a golden band. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire, his feet like fine bronze or brass, as if refined in a fire. And his voice as the sound of many waters. And in his right hand he held the seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun, shining in its strength. And I'll stop right there. Now, this is the key element of the Son of Man's description. Notice there is hint of the brilliant glory that they saw, that, that John saw on the Mount of Transfiguration, as it says in the end of verse 16, that his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. Brilliant, bright, overwhelming, right? But now we get a lot more detail that are, that are a lot of more details that are very important as we begin to see what the Savior is about to do with the churches and in the rest of the, in the rest of the book of Revelation. So here's, here's how it goes. I, uh, he references in verse 11, I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. Again, a, a reference to deity and outside of time. Then he says, I'm going to write these letters, so put them in a book. Make sure you send them. Then he, then John turns around, he sees the voice speaking, and he saw seven golden lampstands. So seven golden lampstands, that is in verse 20, and that's the churches. They're the seven churches that were mentioned. It goes along with the context of verse 11. Notice, as I mentioned in the reading, that it says he was in the midst of the lampstands. Now that word midst is a very interesting word because it's the idea that he is in the very center of his people. Now, this is a, a thematic element with God. God has always wanted to be with his people, with his creation, with mankind, with womankind. There were, there were some, 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 some significant hints of this in the book of Genesis where they would, uh, God would bring the animals and then Adam would name them. Do you know what's so important about that? It's the creator that gets to name the creation because it's his stamp, his mark, his branding of ownership. When you give someone else the right to name the animals of creation, you are saying to that other individual, you treat the creation as if you made it. You treat the creation as if you owned it. You treat the creation as if it's yours. That's the depth of intimacy God was having with Adam and Adam was having with God. So, when the fall occurred, that was just ripped out of the hand of God. Not because he was powerless, but because God allowed it to be to do so. <coughs> From that moment on, God put into motion whatever it would take so he could rejoin people. And when you get to Revelation, it culminates in the final chapters of how that will occur. 
So here in this section, he is saying, I want you to know that that theme of mine to be not ostracized from my people, not separated from my people, and that I could be in the midst of my people, that's exactly what I'm about. Now, we believe that here. So much so that we think that when we gather in his name, he's in our midst. That's what it says in Matthew 18. But he's in your midst if you gather at home in his name. He's in your midst if you're gathering whoops, at camp in his name. But it's really important that we understand it here as a church. Please understand, we are not some kind of conservative group of people that like to look at each other and eat chicken fingers, okay? It's not, it's not that. I like you and I want to eat chicken fingers with you, but... But we got a greater calling than that. We've got a greater polarizing person that galvanizes our loyalty more than anything else, whether it be principle or concept or corporation. And that is the Lord Jesus. And the moment we forget that is the moment we start the dominoes to implode ourselves. He is in the midst. No man here, no woman here should ever challenge that. No man or woman here should ever ever have that, that, that sense of selfish ambition or empty conceit to even come close to competing with the greatness of our Savior. This is why we, we take efforts to, to examine ourselves, not just about our sin, but are we trying to usurp His authority in any way? The Savior is central. We like to say it this way. Let's do what would glorify the Lord Jesus the most. So we'll err on doing everything possible to bring him maximum centrality in our affection. So when he says that, that's key principle for us. All right, move on. One like the Son of Man clothed in... Oh, sorry. Notice the thunderous voice, right? It says that there... I turned to see the voice that spoke with me. Turned, I saw the seven golden lampstands. This thunderous, authoritative voice, right? It, when, I, when I was a, a counselor, I was always a poor counselor, especially as an adult. You, you young people, way better at it than me. I was an adult. Thomas was in my camper, and he, of course, got sti- got a cut because somebody broke the light. And I, you know, Janet told me I should never be a counselor at camp again. All right. Now, one of the things that that I, I, you know, in a camp setting like that is I had to maintain control. They were breaking these fluorescent tubes and everything. And, and uh, you know, the authority I tried to use with my voice, it was very ineffective. <laughs> but not with the Lord. Not with the Lord. That authority, that proclamatory ability to announce, right, now notice it says, one clothed. <coughs> oh boy, I'm sorry, I still have that cough. Give me just a second. <clears throat> there we go. Alright, it says he's one clothed with a garment down to his feet. Now what that describes is an official outfit. It's an official sort of um, garment that really only the priest would wear. 
Let me see if I can explain it. You see, the priest normally would have, of the Levitical priest Aaron of the Old Testament, he'd have a very ornate garment with a, a kind of a breast uh, a, a cover on the, on the, on the undergarments, and, and it would have stones woven in and on the shoulders, and the hymns were, were beautifully uh, embroidered, and you would see uh, bells on the, on, the, on the fringe of the garments, and there was a headdress and a thing that had, had holiness to the Lord. You couldn't miss the guy, right? You couldn't miss him at all. He could be over in Walmart and say, oh, that's the priest. Oh, look at that. You know? all right? Once a year, He would take all that off and he'd put on linen clothes on the day of Yom Kippur, Leviticus 16. And he would look so normal, you you, you would look like an ordinary man, right? So when it says that the Lord Jesus is in this sort of garment that goes down to his his feet, it's not only depicting, thank you, sir, royalty, but it's depicting him as high priest, He's got this official job. Now, we say that because Jesus Christ is is prophet, that is, he, he predicted and everything, but he's priest and he's king. That is very key. There is no other person in all the Bible that has all three roles. Some have two roles, like Melchizedek, who Jesus is patterned after, but Christ had all three. And in this one, he is being uh, uh, imaged as both king but also priest. Now, a priest had certain duties, and they had to go in, and they had to trim the wicks off the menorah. They had to get the bread put in the place. They'd have the right concoction of the uh, of the aromatic spices used to make the incense. Then they'd have to use the right coals from the right uh, uh, um, altar outside to ignite the, uh, uh, to uh, uh, aerosolize, you know, to make the incense burn and, and have a beautiful aroma. And, and they had to do everything perfect and right. They had so many responsibilities. They had to know all about the animal sacrifices to boot. And here it's saying one like the Son of Man. That's a reference to Daniel again, 7.13, referring to his deity who is now doing something. And he's doing something by uh, and communicating that by his garments. Number two, it was girded about the chest with a golden band. Now, some would say, well, that's kind of that thing where they had the 12 stones in it and the two on the shoulders and everything. Could have been, but it just says golden band. That thing in the Old Testament is described more of a a vesture. What is that golden band? Well, it's another statement of his regality. It's gold. But it also bespeaks of his purity. Remember, that went about his chest, so it covered his vital organs And so I think what he's saying is he is the one that's most qualified because he has absolute integrity. There is not a shred of dishonesty or lying or cheating or cover-up in Jesus Christ ever, will never be, never has been. I think it speaks of him being, it says in Hebrews, holy and harmless, free from sin. All right, look at the next one. Let's move on, see how fast we can go. It says, uh, his head and hair were white like wool. Again, ancient of days reference, Daniel chapter 7, verse 9, referencing to his deity, of course, because the ancient of days of Daniel 7, 9, referring to God the Father, but more importantly, his role as a seasoned priest, not some newbie, Not some inexperienced guy, first day on the job, but someone who knows 
what to do, when to do, how to do. And when it comes to the seven, to the seven churches, he knows when to do, how to do, and what to do when he's going to care for the churches. He knows what to say. He knows how to say it. He knows when to say it. He knows how to communicate it. This is the expert at his finest depiction. And that's our Savior, folks. That's the one who cares for us. That's the one who shepherds us. And that's the one who's going to write us this letter. You won't have a more finer individual than the Lord Jesus right here. Now look at the next one. It says, girded about his chest with a golden band, his head and his hair were white like wool, white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. Now, eyes like a flame of fire, that's that's interesting. Number one, of eyes like a flame of fire, just thinking of the image, it, it provides luminescence, it lights, right? How many times do you go into the room when the lights are off and you can't see because your eyes don't light up, you don't like neon up and say, oh, hey, look at that, I, you know, I want to trip over the dog, you know? No, you get, uh, you get your little phone out or your flashlight, you go, oh, look, the dog's right there, I'm going to kill myself, right? Well, here the Lord Jesus doesn't have that problem, but it's more than just this brightens the room kind of thing. More than just seeing your way. The eyes of flame of fire really sort of bespeak of his ability to penetrate beyond the surface, to penetrate down into the very recesses of the heart and soul. Now that'll come out in the letters because he's going to talk about the things that are going on in the hearts of the individual churches and what they're compromised on and what they're, what they're, uh, 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 bending over for Satan's purposes. He's going to talk about the innards of the heart where you can't see it like in, in Laodicea and in Ephesus. So the eyes like a flame of fire should really speak to us that they can, that his eyes, his vision penetrates well beyond our very ornately decorated hypocrisy. He's not fooled. You know, it takes me back to one of my early days at Truman Medical Center. And at Truman, uh, there was a really, really nice people there. Really, really nice people. And so nice, they never said a curse word. Very polite, very careful. And I thought, oh, I bet they're a Christian. Next day I went to talk to them. You know who they were? Church of the Revised Church of the Latter-day Saints and Independents. I was so fooled. I'm, I, I, I was about ready to ask them, so do you know the Lord Jesus as your Savior? They said, no. Right? I was so fooled. See, the, the Lord doesn't ever have that moment of being tricked. He sees right through it. All right, let's look at it next. And his, uh, uh, his uh, feet were like fine brass. That which was in, in cooked in a fire. So in order to get brass, you know, you have to uh, take certain kind of metals, mix them together, and then you fire it. And that, you know, you put it in the oven. And the heat raises up to a temperature. It uh, allows different kind of bonding, and, and you get this material called brass or bronze. And um, the point is, is that he, you have to, to heat it up to a certain level. Now, He's saying, when John said, when I looked at him, his feet were like that. What does he mean? He means that he walks in the furnace that distills out all the impurities. See, that's what you do when you heat something up. All the impurities go to the top and you scrape them off, right? You see, you're getting repetitive statements 
of his ability to make decisions with perfect vision. He's going to come to deal with the purity of the church. That's what he's going to do. And every one of these begins to talk like that. The seasoned element of the great high priest. He's come with an official robes to do his business. He's got a purity of heart. He's got a, a, a sense of, of the eyes that are of a flame of fire. His feet have walked through that which is fiery itself. He's going to make some hard discussions about the church. And it's appropriate to do so. It says his voice has sounded as, as of many waters. Have you ever been to Niagara Falls? It's really interesting. We can stand, Janet, I can stand this close, and we can say this. And she'll go, and I'll go, what? No, no, that. And she'll go, what? Because behind you is this waterfall. <laughs> Just like that. Well, it's much louder than that. Now, that whole thing would be like being in the Lord to the tenth, being in the presence of the Lord to the tenth power, right? Can you imagine? I mean, so deafening. I'd be going like, you know? And what is that saying? There's power and there's authority and there's jurisdiction and he owns it all. He's coming to make some hard calls on the church. That's what he's doing. Notice this. It says not only that, he holds in his right hand the seven stars. What are the seven stars? Well, look down verse 20. They're the messengers that he's commissioned to communicate these letters to the churches. He holds their, he's got authority over them. Not only that, look at this. Out of his mouth is the sharp two-edged sword. What is the two-edged sword? It's the broad sword. The Roman, there's a, a dagger, a short one for hand-to-hand, and there's a broad one. You know, whoosh, whoosh. He's coming for business, is what he's saying. And he's come, if you will, to clean house. Is that inappropriate for Jesus to do that? Absolutely not. First Peter four seventeen. If he's going to bring judgment to the world, it's appropriate that judgment begins with the house of his people. That's what it says. You see, we kind of create Jesus as a baby, don't we? This gushy little Pillsbury doughboy that um, this time of year means that we should all be kind of nice and gentle and polite because, you know, he's such a cute little bambino. You know what we call that? Inaccurate. This Jesus of ours was more than a baby. This Jesus is God. And this Jesus is God, not an impotent God, not a God that is like some sort of um, deranged mythological feature of the Roman hierarchy. This Jesus who is God is intentional, purposeful, accurate, pure, and means business. And we need to think of him that way. We need to understand that it is his right and prerogative to speak and write us letters that we need to read and obey. That's what he's telling us. You know, it's a hard thing to comprehend. And when we get to those churches, he'll mention these features. That's why I'm going over them. But you will see that he has a tender heart. Every letter has a soft spot in it where the shepherd is begging his sheep to come home. What a beautiful display of our Lord Jesus. Notice this. He says, 
His countenance shining like the sun and in strength, again, that blinding element. And what should be our response? Our response, or what was John's response? That should be our response. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead. You see, the polarizing, the galvanizing effect of the presence of the Savior, that should be upon us. You know, I pray for us every week that we break bread together. Even when I'm not here, I pray for the assembly that you would see the Savior like you've never seen him before. For in that moment that you see the Savior and that glorious gloriousness that he has, we would fall at his feet, not to be dead, but to be humble worshipers of our God. And that's what I think we need to think about as we approach this next year. What kind of worshipers are we? Maybe we're just anemic or pathetic in our understanding of who this great individual is, such that we treat him as if he's common. He is nothing. He is nothing like a common man. This gentleman that resides in our assembly, this person, our Savior, he could take you out like that. But he chooses to hold himself at bay and exercise the meekness that is within his soul to care for our assembly in no uncertain terms. This is your Savior. And if there's anything that should happen from just this examination, brief as it is of chapter 1, is that we should come to a point where we will fall on our faces before him unashamedly week after week, moment by moment, so that we put him with the right, we give him the right homage and attitude that has always been his. And yet he earned it even more by dying on the cross and rising again from the dead. That's our Lord Jesus. So saints, as we gather ourselves and see the Savior, let's not forget who he is. Let's not. Because many of those letters, those churches, they forgot who he was. Let's not let that be ours, right? Finally, he ends like this. Don't be afraid. You know, ten times in the New Testament, the Lord Jesus said, don't be afraid to various emotional responses and fear, loss of a, loss of a loved one, walking on water, being dishonoring to the Savior, uh, Peter was. Don't be afraid. Here, John is just so frightened at the incredible sight of the Savior. He responds in the only way a man should respond. And here, look how tender he is. Don't be afraid. It's okay, it's me. You see that? Yeah, I just love him. Man, don't you just love him? So regal, so majestic, so mighty. And then he says to us, the little child, it's okay, it's all right. Oh, what a God. I am he who lives, this is Jesus talking, and was dead, going back to the great achievement of conquering death, and I am alive forevermore. Can you just hear the angels singing at that point, clapping? <sighs> and I am alive forevermore. John, I won't ever die again. And I give that life to you. I have the keys of Hades and death. I, I, I conquered it. I own it. I can unlock it. I can lock it. That's me. And I'm here with you, John, and you don't need to be afraid. My power 
was not meant to make you afraid of me. My power is meant to join your heart to mine. Oh, man, what a lovely Lord Jesus. Write these things down, these things which are, and the things which must take place after this. That's the, the, the I, th- I think, and, and thought to be the outline of the book of Revelation, the things that, that are, are, that you have seen, those are right now, uh, the things which are, are, those are the letters to the churches, and the things which must take place are the future events, and that same formula will be reiterated in its third part in chapter four, verse one. And then he says, those seven stars you saw, those are my messengers. I got them. They're on my leash. They're on my payroll. Those seven lampstands, those are the churches. And I'm here to have a conversation with each one. I don't know what you think, but in my house, if I say, William's here, so I'll use you. William, come here, I want to talk to you. William never says, Okay, I'll get you, I'll get back with you tomorrow. Right? He never not answers. He never puts me off. He comes right there. Why is it that when Jesus would present himself in such a grand way, he says, I'd like to have a little visit with you. We'll shut the book and shut them down. I can't do that anymore, can you? No, 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 no. This Savior of ours, he's too, he's too magnificent. And saints, that's what I want us to see him. I want us to see his magnificence as he ministers and works with the churches of Revelation. The Son of Man. The Son of God. I'll pray and then we'll turn it over. I think Ben, if you, you're up next, is that right? Oh, me? Okay. All right. Father, we just want to commit this hour to you and ask you to just take the word of God and let it be more than just a pleasant discussion of things in the Bible. We have to be a people that reads the word of God, that is touched by the word of God and does the word of God. Father, I live so much of my life where I've just done the first one or two and then that's been it. But Lord, not this year, not this coming year, not this Christmas season. We want to be a people. You say it, we'll do it or we'll die trying. There's nothing else left for us. Christ is our life. Christ is our life. If we have, we don't have him, we have no life at all. Father, I know, I know for certain that's how you want your church to be towards you. And I'm asking you to make us like that. In Jesus' name. Amen.